0: We are the Church of Encouragement. That's why we titled them Legacy of Rot and things like that. Uh, that was obviously not the most uplifting thing you've probably ever heard, and maybe today's lesson isn't the most uplifting lesson you'll ever hear. However, it is scriptural and it is something that we need to talk a little bit about. But before we get to that, uh, I'd like to have you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to get lost today. So raise your hand if you don't have a Bible, and we'll bring one right to where you're at. Um, we got all the guys back there. It looks like we have, uh, Chris and Brian and, uh, Dave and Brian. <laughs> it seems like everybody's named Brian. Here we go. Uh, just keep your hands up. You'll get one right to where you're at. Now we just got done with a leadership retreat this week. Uh, we took all our leadership team and the way it works here at the church is the elders run the church of which Russ and I are two of the six that run the church and then there's a leadership team and those are the ones that run the men's ministries the women's ministries and hospitality and well we got a bunch of them together there's about 20 of us and we all went up to Truckee and there were two cabins up there that we stayed in we went up thursday night and stayed there all day friday and then we came back on saturday afternoon and in that time we basically had some times to talk about some practical stuff of the ministry and then talk about some heart stuff and Talk about uh, some uh, walking with Jesus stuff. And it was a really, really powerful time. But I am here to let you know that I am a man that this week I had my man card revoked. And I need you to understand why. Here's why. Not only uh, did I cry like a little girl, okay? I, I, There's a lot of that going on. And I don't know. I'm just kind of a crier anyway. So maybe I never had a man card. But then, on top of all of that, I quoted from the movie The Notebook. And I just want you, I want you to understand that uh, at that point, all the men in the room just pulled it away from me. So uh, I'm hoping to earn it back and and maybe you can help me in that endeavor. I don't know. But uh, anyway, uh, we had a great time. And I can tell you this very honestly and very uh, confidently, our leadership team has never been more healthy. We went through and had some real community and it was messy community. And we talked about a lot of stuff of our hearts and it was Literally, that part of it was kind of emotionally tiring, Um, but it was good. It was healthy. It was right. And so I come to you with a full heart and looking forward to a nap. But anyway, I got uh, the, the handout sheet in your bulletin. If you could take that out, let's get started today. I want to read a quote to you, and it's the bottom one first, and it's by Rick McKinley, who wrote Jesus in the margins. He said this. Fathers have tremendous power to shape our lives. A power inherent in the family structure is ordained by God. God designed the father to be the head of the home, and so each of us is wired to long for the love of our fathers. When fathers abuse their God-given place in our lives, they leave a legacy of confusion and heartache for their children. And, you know, I do a lot of counseling around this church, and I would suggest to you that a large majority of what we are talking about in that room is this issue right here, is we are in a nation of absentee fathers, and it's not that they were necessarily gone out of the house, it's they were removed from our lives. And that speaks to the next quote by David Ferguson, who wrote the book Intimate Encounters. He said this as speaking of different types of home lives. He said in the neglectful home, parents are under involved in meaningful ways with their children. The neglect may be present in several situations. They could be alcoholic or workaholic homes or parents who are preoccupied, distant or emotionally closed. In each case, the message to the other family members is the same. You're just not very important to me. As a result, family members set out to earn their rightful recognition through performing in order to gain approval. A child might seek attention through academics, athletics, popularity, or from disruptive behavior. But the message is always the same. Notice me. I am important. I heard a story this week that, that was shocking and very sad to me. And it was that there was a pastor of 40 years that talked to a friend of mine. Now, a pastor who's in the ministry for 40 years is rare. And you know what? His legacy is extraordinary. He's a good man. He's a wonderful man. He has touched more lives, perhaps, than I will ever touch in the whole tenure of my ministry. And yet, when talking to my friend, they were talking about regrets. He said, I have one, at least one great regret About my years in ministry. He said, when I was in seminary, before I launched out into the years of ministry, I was told by a seminary professor, what goes on in your home is your wife's job. You take care of the church. He said, my great regret was that I believed him. Now, after 40 years of ministry and leading perhaps thousands to Christ, not one of his four children are walking with God. Parenting is one of the most difficult things you will ever do. There is no easy manual on how to do it. There is no way to be able to do it so that you're assured that your children will do everything right. Listen to me very closely. You do not have, you have not, nor will ever have control over your children. You only have influence. Sometimes you will do everything right. And your children will still do their own things. If you take my example, I grew up in the same house as my sister. She's very, very close to me. As a matter of fact, our whole lives were merged for a long time. Yet when it came to spiritual matters, she went one direction, I went the other direction. We had the same mom. We had the same dad. We lived in the same household. And there's absolutely no guarantee you cannot control your children. They have their own decisions to make. But make no mistake, you have influence. And no matter how old you are, you still have influence. If you are a grandparent today, of which we have many here, you're still impacting your children and your grandchildren. And you are constantly influencing them for the kingdom of God. So no, it's not too late. And as a matter of fact, what you did in the past perhaps means a lot less than what you're doing right now. So it's not too late to engage with your children. It's not too late to engage with your grandchildren. You will have a legacy, either for good or for bad. So today's lesson is called Legacy Abroad, When Gideon's Son Fails as a Leader. It's part six of our series, and there's a couple things we need to know before we begin. This story that we're about to read, reads like a Western It's Wild West. And the whole time you think about it, think in those terms because it just makes more sense. I mean, think about the whole riding up on the horse, got the gun strapped to your side, because this is the Dark Ages. The book of Judges says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that not sound like the Wild West? Everybody was their own sheriff. Everybody settled their problems by killing each other. Everybody did what they wanted to do. Now, in the year of holiness, part of that is saying, listen, we are not about our own agendas. We are not about settling our own revenge. We are not about running around, making the world bow down to us. Part of holiness is understanding there is one God and you're not it. So you need to realize we submit our agendas to God and then do things his way. And things are much more peaceful, much more orderly, much more healthy. But when we move into this this time, the longest chapter in the book of Judges, which is as a matter of fact, many times the most depressing, we run into a character named Abimelech who was Gideon's son. Now, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about this great guy, Gideon. Well, son's miserable. And we have to begin by saying, why did he start out so bad? It's not even like he was a great guy and then he went bad. He was bad from the beginning. You gotta say, why? Well, I don't think that we would do justice to abimelech without considering the 13 verses just before we start the chapter i'm not going to read them for you you can read them on your own but i want to cite eight different ways and you don't have to write these down eight different ways that gideon failed his kids as a father now you may look at this and it may make you feel a lot better about your parenting style okay Mm. you may think man i'm a miserable dad but this guy is well he's a lot worse Gideon almost looked like he didn't even try. And he did stuff that any one of them would have messed up his kids. But he did all eight. The first one he did was he acted like a king while denying the title. And you go, what does that mean? It means that after he became a deliverer of Israel, they all came to him and said, man, you are incredible. Can't you be our leader? Be our king. We'll all bow down to you. And he said, no, no, no. I couldn't possibly do that. I'm a godly man. We all know that God runs this nation. No, neither I nor my sons will ever become king here. Well, that sounded great. Problem is, he lived like a king for the rest of his life. What does that teach your kids? Do as I say, not as I do. Meaning you tell everybody what they want to hear. Matter of fact, you tell God what he wants to hear. But you do what you want to do. Number two, he was a fake priest. He set up what it says in the Bible is a a golden ephod in his home country and it became a snare to the nation of Israel. In other words, he set up the ability for him to be priest. He's not allowed to be priest. He's in the wrong tribe of Israel. He's not authorized, but he was trying to control God, in my opinion. He wanted to try to say when God came and went, what does that teach your kids? It teaches your kids that you pick and choose when God's involved in your life and when he's not. And if God doesn't do what you want him to do, you try to manipulate him. Is that healthy? Absolutely not. Number three, he had 70 sons. You have to understand, in that culture, sons were the only ones that counted. So how many daughters do you think he had? How many daughters do he have to go through to get those 70 sons? Let's say it's a one-to-one ratio. 140 kids. What in the world was he thinking? Why would you ever want 140 children? Why would you do that? I've got two, and I don't know if I'm going to make it. Does that make sense? Why do you want 140 kids? There is only one answer I can think of. Status. Because sons were an honor in Israel. And if you had a bunch of them, it meant you were a stud. So he had 70 of them. What does that tell your kids? How much quality time do you think he spent with each one of his kids? Did you ever meet them? And I'm serious. Do you understand what that's doing? You're not having kids to pour into them. You're having kids because you want to have kids and look good. Is that how dads and moms are supposed to handle it? Number four, it says he had many wives. You can't have 140 kids without many wives. Had many wives. What does that teach your kids? That women are something to collect, like stamps. Right? How do you think his sons took that as they went forward in life? Mom's just whatever. I wonder how many I'm going to get when I get older, he thought. Number five, he had at least one concubine. What's a concubine? It's a woman you want to have sex with, but you don't want to make her your wife. She's not worthy in your mind. As a matter of fact, we find out it was a slave girl. So now all the family knows that you hooked up and had a kid with some girl. And then you go, Daddy, how come mom is one of your wives and Abimelech's mom is still the slave girl. And he goes, because she's not worth it. Oh, OK. You think that's healthy? Absolutely not. Number six, he intermarried with a pagan nation, the Hivite nation. He intermarried in the town of Shechem. And now he has a half breed. Now his son is not welcomed in the Hivite culture and he's not welcomed in the Jewish culture. And you say, so what did that do to him? It left him without a people group. It left them mixed up as to who in the world he was. Was that fair? As a matter of fact, God said, don't do that to the Jews. He did it anyway. What does that teach your kids? Number seven, he lived in a different town from his mistress and her son. Proximity matters. Listen to me very closely. Proximity matters with your kids. Being near them matters. When you're far away, it does something. Being near does something else. I would suggest to you that he never even hung out with this kid. I wonder if Abimelech, growing up as the slave girl's boy, knew that his daddy was in a town somewhere else. He barely ever met him. And boy, everybody thought his dad was great. But he never knew it. And number eight, he blew it at the end. He, he ended poorly. He was a great deliverer of Israel and there was 40 years of peace and then he just fell apart. Sometimes it doesn't matter necessarily how you start. A lot of us stumble out of the gates as early parents. We're tripping and falling on our face and we don't know what we're doing and we're asking for advice and all this stuff. And you've got to finish strong. It matters. So here we have, that is what has been baked into this young man. And we wonder why he's messed up. He is a miserable man. Is it all his dad's fault? No. And if you are still, as a grown person, blaming your parents for who you are, you're out of line. You've had a lot of time to make decisions since then. And you've either made it worse or made it better. Now, don't get me wrong. We are the sum of all that we've come from. So they impacted us. And we need to address that. But we can't run around shifting blame anymore. So Abimelech needs to stand or fall on his own merits when he became a man. And that's what we're about to read. The question in front of you is a fill in the blank. What will be your legacy? What will be your legacy? See, it's not just about bad. Your legacy could be extraordinary. I stand here as an element of legacy of my mother. She taught me about Jesus. She entered me into a world with Christ. It was her that led me through to be able to accept Jesus. And it was her that patterned for me how to live as a Christian. I stand here as her legacy. And I have been able to touch thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people all over the country. And as a matter of fact, it's spreading out into the world. And it's all because of her legacy. I'm an extension of her. And my children... I pray and I train every day to try to allow them to walk with the Lord. I have no control over that. But if they walk with the Lord and they begin doing ministry, that's an extension of my mom. Do you see that? Her legacy is echoing out all over the world because she made choices, because she stayed true to the Lord. She stayed close to the Lord and she modeled for us what it is to be a Christian. So understand, legacy does not have to be bad. It can be extraordinarily wonderful. But we have choices to make. Let's read about a man who made the wrong ones. Judges chapter nine, verse one. Judges chapter nine, verse one. Page 177, and the Bible's handed to you. you're about to hear a story that's about selfish living and personal agenda. And I want you to continue to think, Wild West. Here we go. Abimelech, son of Jerobaal, who's that? That's Gideon, his dad went to his mother's brothers in Shechem. Remember, this was half Jew, half Hivite city. Kind of a mixture. Largely pagan. And he said to them and to all his mother's clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem, what's better for you? To have all, your, to have all 70 of Gideon's sons rule over you or just one man? Now, let's stop. The Bible doesn't say anything about his sons leading. So we have two choices. Either this guy's lying through his teeth Or his sons are following in Gideon's footsteps and they are leading as kings. In my opinion, the second one is more likely. He said, what's better for you to have all 70 of them rule or just one man? Remember, I'm your flesh and blood. Remember, he was half and half. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, hey, he's our brother. And he begins to vie for the throne to lead a coup they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal now Baal Berith, what it says here means god of the covenant Baal was the pagan god of the area they went into the pagan temple treasury pulled out a huge amount of cash and gave it to him to help launch his vie for the throne when you take blood money when you take money from a pagan god what did you just say to God you're on the opposite side he takes the cash, puts it in his pocket, and how does he use it? Look at the next phrase. And Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. Simply said, mercenaries. Yeah? He's gonna run, he's gonna throw a coup, try to overtake the throne from his brothers, and so he hired a bunch of killers. He's got some banditos. Now we're talking, this is we go wild west style, right? He goes and goes out and hires all the bad guys. They all sidle up alongside of him. They all ride their horses into town and they're ready to take care of business. So sure enough, verse five, he went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Gideon. Now, where's Gideon's honor? Lying there in cold blood. What is one stone? Why does it say it that way? Most scholars believe that that was the town altar, the pagan altar. Why is it still there? Why is it still in Gideon's hometown? Because he allowed it to be. Now that he's gone, what happened to his family? Is it not ironic that his idolatry not only led the nation of Israel astray and led his family astray, but the very pagan altar he allowed to remain there was what his sons were sacrificed on. Now that is irony. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal or Gideon, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. Okay, here's the picture. They're underneath the great oak of Moray, which is a famous location where Abraham had talked to God, and it was very rich in heritage, and it was a very godly place. They have a coronation ceremony to raise up a pagan king in front of everybody on this holy ground. And it says citizens from where? From Shechem came and from Beth Millo. In order to get the picture, you need to see this. Picture a walled city named Shechem. Inside the walled city is a fortress area called Beth Millow. It's inside the city, but they almost have separate zip codes. Does that make sense? You go, oh, where do you live? I live in this section of town. It had its own name. All right. But it's still in the city of Shechem. So there they are under the tree doing this coronation ceremony. And Jotham comes out of hiding the youngest boy that had escaped. When Jotham was told about this, verse 7, he climbed up to the top of Mount Gerizim, which is a mountain in the area and has a rich heritage, and he shouted to them. Now, this kind of seems funny in your mind. You go, how did you climb all the way to the top of a mountain and then shout all the way down? Okay, well, here's what it looks like. In that area at Shechem, the mountain's right in front of you. It's steep. And it has rock ledges that stick out. As a matter of fact, there's one overlooking this plain that has a triangular rock that sticks out almost like a natural pulpit. You can stand up on it and talk to them, but they can't get you because they have to run and go all the way up the mountain to come kill you. So you have safety, but you also have a place to talk. So he begins shouting to them and he tells them a fable. The first fable in the Bible, one of two. And it's also a fables of parable. You know what a fable is? You guys have heard of Aesop's fables. It's where an inanimate object is made animate, where it starts talking. Okay, that's all it means. He tells them a story. Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day, the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, what, should I give up my oil by which both gods and men are honored and hold sway over the trees? Next, the tree said to the fig tree, come be our king. But the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruits so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, come be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and men to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, come be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, if you really want me to be anointed as king over you, Come and take refuge in my shade, which means they would have to bow down. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. You go, what are you talking about? It's a very simple statement. Here it is. When you want a leader, all the great leaders are already doing something important. That's why they're great. No, they're not going to leave their position and go help you out. They already got a position, so you get desperate. And you grab the bottom of the barrel, a guy that's not a leader for a reason. And you scrape him out and ask him to be your king. And he said, all right, if you want me to be king, I'm shocked that you do. But if you want me to be king, it's not going to go super well for you unless you bow down to me. That's the whole point of the story. Nothing deeper than that. And then he explains it. Verse 16. Now, if you have acted honorably and in good faith when you made Abimelech king, obviously the answer is they didn't. And if you've been fair to Gideon and his family, and if you've treated him as he deserves, which, of course, they didn't. And he makes a side note, verse 17. And to think that my father fought for you. He risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian. But today you've revolted against my father's family. You've murdered his 70 sons on a single stone. And you made Abimelech, the son of his slave girl, king over the citizens of Shechem because he's your brother. You can hear the disgust. Verse 19, if then you've acted honorably and in good faith towards Jeroboam and his family today, sure, may Abimelech be your joy and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. And then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer, for he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. So he throws out this challenge tells them this great fable says hey if you did right blessings on you i know you didn't and if you didn't judgment's coming upon you and then he bails out and runs that's a wise man now he thought he was just giving some wise fable and he was jotting it down and wanting it to be just perfect and what was he doing he's being used by god as a prophecy he prophesied over them this is about to happen And let's see how it goes out. Verse 22, after Abimelech had governed Israel three years. Now, he was a local leader and they all hated him. He was a tyrant. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem who acted treacherously against him. Stop. God used a what? Now who's hiring mercenaries? Right? What does that mean? God using an evil spirit. You guys ever read the beginning of Job? Try wrestling with that one. That's even weirder than this one. Here's the bottom line. All you need to know, sometimes God uses bad people to execute judgment on bad people. So both die in the process. Pretty efficient, I would say. Get as many out as you can as quickly as possible. God did this in order that the crime against Gideon's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and... On the citizens of Shechem, who had helped him murder his brothers. So there's two crews that need to go down, right? The citizens of Shechem and Beth Millo, those that were involved in the coup, and Abimelech, right? Two sides that need to go down. How's God going to do that? Here's what I want you to know. We stand under the watchful eye of a sovereign God. And sometimes we feel that the injustice upon us, everyone's getting away with it. Sometimes we feel that bad guys always win. Sometimes we feel like good guys always lose. Sometimes we feel that no matter how much we try to do great stuff at work, the guy that cheats always goes up ahead of us. You think God just ignores that? You think God doesn't care? No, God is watching all of it. And if you are a child of his, he has not turned a blind eye to your injustice. And we as Christians should stand up more for the cause of injustice than we do. We're too busy being spiritual and playing some type of religious patty cake in order to step in. So God does it through other means. So how is this going to go down? Well, God brings a big, tough, stupid cowboy to ride into town. His name is Gaul. Let's take a look at him. Now, Gaul, son of Ebed, who's that? Nobody knows. Nobody cares. All right. It's not even he never is mentioned again in the Bible. He's a nobody, but he's a big, tough, dumb guy. Gaul, son of Ebed, moved with his brothers into Shechem and its citizens put their confidence in him. Not a wise move. Verse 27. After they had gone out into the fields and gathered the grapes and trodden them, they held a festival in the temple of their God. While they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. OK, here's your picture. Everyone goes to the saloon. Everybody's hammered. And now they all start complaining. They're all sharing their heart. All right. They're going, I hate living here. I hate this king. This guy's a moron. He's been leading us for three years. We got to get rid of this guy. And everyone's just spouting off their mouth. Well, this is a perfect time for big, tough, dumb cowboy guy to step up and say something. So he does. Then Gaul, son of Ebed, said, who's Abimelech? Who's Shechem that we should be subject to him? Isn't he Jeroboam's son? And isn't Zebul his deputy? Nah, you got to serve them in a Hamor, Shechem's father. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command, then I'd get rid of him. I'd say to Abimelech, call out your whole army. You think when he woke up, he remembered what he said? He's been spouting all night long. What was his point? His point was, why are we following a half-breed? Are we not Hivites? Come on, you guys. Why is this half-Jew running us? Let's go all Hivite here. I mean, this is ridiculous. Why is he even in leadership? Give me a chance. I'll take him out. I'm a tough guy. All right. Well, he just insulted the governor. Bad choice. When Zebul, the governor of the city, heard what Gaul, son of Ebed, said, he was angry. Hmm. Undercover, he sent messengers to Abimelech saying, Gaul, son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and they're stirring up the city against you. Now then, during the night, you and your men should come and lie and wait in the fields. And in the morning at sunrise, advance against the city. When Gaul and his men come out against you, eh, do whatever your hand finds to do. <laughs> what was his point? And then you kill them all. All right? So Abimelech and all his troops set out by night and took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Now, Gaul, son of Ebed, had gone out and was standing at the entrance to the city gate, just as Abimelech and his soldiers came out from their hiding place. All right, here's a picture. Walled city, city gates. At the city gates is where all the cool people hung out. All the politicians, all the popular people, all the wise people, the big, tough, dumb cowboy guys. Everyone's hanging out at the city gates and they're all talking about stuff. So you can imagine, here's Gaul. He's got the straw coming out of his mouth, got his hat down low. Right? He's talking to the governor of the city. And all of a sudden he notices he's going, hey, looks like there's people coming this way. All right? Now... He's not real bright. And apparently Abimelech's not very good at sneaking up on people. Okay? Because he just sees him right off the bat. When Gaul saw them, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. Right? Now Zebul has to buy some time. So Zebul replies, You mistake the shadows of mountains for men. In other words, Nope, I don't see anything. (laughs) You're like, No, I'm pretty sure... Those are guys coming after me. But he believed it. So they're still moving. And Gaul spoke up again. Look, people are coming down from the center of the land. And a company is coming from the direction of the soothsayers tree. Well, now it's totally obvious. So Zebel, the governor, said, where's your big talk now? You who said, who's Abimelech that we should be subject to him? Aren't these the men you ridiculed? Go out and fight them. All right. Now pride's on the line. You can't back off. You can't run away. You can't go back in the city. you got one choice. you got to fight. So this big, tough, dumb guy goes out to fight. Verse 39. So Gaul let out the citizens of Shechem, and he fought Abimelech. Abimelech chased him, and many fell wounded in the flight all the way to the entrance to the gate. So he chased them back in the city. They've locked the gate. Abimelech's on the outside. He has two choices. Go home and let them take care of their own bad guys or storm the city and besiege it. Well, he's got a guy on the inside, the governor. So he goes home. Abimelech stayed in Aruma and Zebul drove Gaul and his brothers out of Shechem. Now you'd assume that's the end of the story. The traitors were removed. Not for Abimelech. This guy's on a personal vendetta. He's got the taste of blood and he will not settle until everyone that dared to insult him is dead. So what does he do? The next day, the people of Shechem go back to life as normal. They went out to the fields and this was reported to Abimelech. So he took his men, divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. When he saw the people coming out of the city, he rose to attack them. Abimelech and the companies with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance to the city gate. Then two companies rushed upon those in the fields and struck them down. And all that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. Okay, remember, walled city, two zip codes. The main city has now been captured. The other fortress area is not captured. But on the rest of it, he slows down for a second to put an insult. He scatters salt over it. That is a symbolic symbol of may it never be resettled here. How effective was he? Well, actually, when he dies, it gets resettled and it doesn't have any impact. But he was trying to say, listen, I'm a big deal. Listen to me. Scatters the salt over it. Now he has to finish the job. On hearing this, the citizens in the Tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple of El Barith. El is another word for Baal. So they went into the pagan temple. They locked the doors. That's their fortress hold. And it was somewhat subterranean. It was underground, partially. About a thousand people were able to fit in there. And they're holed up to try to wait him out and hope he goes away. When Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up to Mount Zalman. That word actually just means foresty. They went to a forest area. He took an axe and cut off some branches, which he lifted on his shoulders. He ordered the men with him, quick, do what you've seen me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire over the people inside. So all the people in the Tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, died. He just smoked them out and cooked them. Is this a good guy? Why is he doing this? Pride. Selfish agenda. How dare they question me? I'm king here, he's saying. And he just slaughters people by the thousands. Next, he's not done. He went to Thebes. Why is he going there? We don't know. Apparently, it's a sister city that was somehow involved in the rebellion. He goes to the and besieges it and captures it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city fled. They locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Now, stop. He is way out of his league. He's killing people that may or may not have even been involved. But what did God do so far? He had two people to take down. The citizens of Shechem needed to have judgment. Have they had judgment? Yeah, they just all got burned alive. They're down. Who's next? Abimelech. So we have to take out part two. Look how God does it. This is actually my favorite part. Here we go. Inside the city was a strong tower, and the men and women all the people of the city fled. They locked themselves in it and climbed up on the tower roof, and Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped the upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Well done, well done. (laughs) Let me explain what just happened. Women, this is below men, women use grinding mills. And they had two stones that would crush against each other and crush the grain. It was a household appliance. And there was a bottom stone. And you guys ever see BC, the cartoon comic strip in the paper, and they're always riding on those wheels? Okay, that's all it is. It's a big caveman-looking stone with a hole in the middle. So they had two of those. The bottom one was about 10 to 14 inches in diameter. The top one was 8 to 10 inches in diameter. Several inches thick with a hole in the middle like a donut. Solid stone. Lady grabs toaster, pulls off wheel, goes out, Boo! bam, nails him right on the head. That's awesome. Now You've got you to picture this. He's now mortally wounded. I'm dying. Oh, no, I'm dying. What is his concern? Is it who will be my successor? Is it, oh my gosh, you got to go call my kids? Is it, you know what, get me to a medic? What is it? What is he concerned about mostly? Verse 54. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, quick, draw your sword and kill me so they can't say a woman killed me. <laughs> That's all he cares about. You're going, come on. What is your problem? So, his servant ran him through and he died. <laughs> okay. And now he's in the world's most popular book as the guy that got killed by a woman. And you're like, that didn't work out real well for you, did it? And this is the funniest line, verse fifty five. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. (laughs) It was kinda like everyone finishes the storming and they're like, Dang, it's still early. You want to catch a movie? Yeah. Alright, good. And then it's all going to walk off. And nobody cares. No, it was not their idea to do this. It was this one guy's agenda to run around and wreck havoc. And he got everybody to do this. And they didn't even want to be there. So when he dies, they just go home. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. And God also made the men of Shechem pay for their wickedness. And the curse of Jotham, son of Jerubbaal, came on them. Here's what you must know: It is not about us. We must submit our agendas to God. I heard a story as I was reading a book recently, and he said, "When I was young, I had so many plans. I was going to do this, I was going to do that, I was going to do this, I was going to do that, And nobody would dare stand in my way, because dang it, I had my agenda." And then I met my wife and everything went out the window. He said, I met my wife, Jean. And you know what? I was enamored with her. She was the most amazing thing I ever met. I put all my agenda off on the side. Switched everything around. And everybody else would look at me and go, well, why would you change your thing? He said, because she was the most important thing to me. And I switched everything willingly for her. As I was reading that, I thought, you know what? Wherever happened to our first love with Jesus, where we had all our agendas and all of a sudden we run into him and we take all those agendas and throw them out the window and say, Jesus, what are we doing today? You see, the more and more we chase after holiness, the more and more we chase after God, blessings flow. But the more and more we chase after selfish ambition and doing it our way and getting everybody back and trying to make a name for ourselves, there's only going to be chaos. So we have some choices to make. Mark, can you bring the team up here as we close out? We must choose today what legacy we're going to leave. At the end of the day, did your day have your footprint on it or God's footprint on it? Is it still about your kingdom being built? Or did you just put that on hold and say, God, I will only build this insofar as it lines up with your plan for my life. You have the ability today to make choices, to leave a legacy of holiness. It's your choice. Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Father, for a reminder that you are watching over and we don't have to run and fix our reputation and do everything that you're going to see that it works out. And Lord, I pray that as we submit to you and lean into you, you would teach us how to lead our children and leave a legacy. May you be honored and praised and may everything in our lives reflect you in Jesus name. Amen.